Welcome to another episode of the Exposing Pseudoastronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 5 for the second half of September 2011. In this episode, I'm going to stimulate your cells with heat and radiation, because the topic is the deadly temperature and murderous radiation claims of the Apollo moon hoax conspiracy. The format is going to be a little bit different in that I'm going to present the claim first and then talk about the background and why it's not correct in light of the environment of space and the moon. The first claim that I'm going to talk about here is, really to put it bluntly, an easy one to talk about and a really quick one, but it's the only audio clip that I could find on this particular topic by the only major living player in the Apollo moon hoax conspiracy, Bart Cybrell. The pictures are allegedly going from minus 250 degrees of Fahrenheit in the shade to plus 250 degrees in the sunlight. Now, when I take film from my hotel room and go outside that's 30 degrees different, it fogs up. So why isn't it fogging up when there's a 500 degree difference? This is really simple. His camera fogged up because it went from cold to hot on Earth. Earth's atmosphere has water in it. The warm air with water came in contact with the cold camera and the very local temperature dropped. Lower temperature can't support as much water and the water condensed out onto his camera. On the moon, there is no water in the atmosphere because there's no atmosphere, despite what John Lear claims, but that's an issue for another podcast. So with no moisture, there will be no condensation on the lenses. This is exactly the same thing that happens when you blow your breath on a cold day on glass, or when you put cold liquid into a glass during the summer and condensation forms. It's less of an issue here in Colorado, but I grew up in Ohio and I dealt with this. I know what you guys go through. And really, with a camera, anyone can make this kind of mistake. I was in Hawaii on a perfectly legitimate geology field trip, and my camera was in the car during the night. It got cold. Hawaii, at least where we were, is pretty much 100% humidity. We drove to the first stop, I got out, took pictures, and realized that all of my lenses had fogged up. I spent the next half hour riding in the car with my lenses buried between my legs to try to heat them up so that it wouldn't be an issue at the next stop where there were cool waterfalls. The next claim also deals with temperature. Now, parts of this quote were assembled from Dave Kostnett, Jackie Jura, or Hura, I'm not sure which, and then a book by Mike Barra, Steve Troy, and Richard Hoagland. So it's not exactly a quote, but it's a quote with lots of ellipses. It goes, The temperature during the Apollo missions were recorded as being between negative 180 degrees in the shade to 200 degrees Fahrenheit in full sunshine. How could the film emulsion have withstood such temperature differences? Exposure meters fail and film shatters in extreme cold. The film would melt in the high temperatures. To understand what's going on here, you have to know about how heat is transferred. It can be moved from one material to another through any combination of three processes, and only three processes. The first is the most efficient, and is called convection. This is when material physically mixes with another material. An example I like to use is when soup boils on a stovetop. Material moves around, going from the bottom to the top, and then sinking again when it gets colder. 
This same thing happens in Earth's mantle, with rising and sinking convection cells, and it also happens in parts of the Sun. The second is called conduction. This is when one material physically touches another material, like when the pot of water is on the stove. The pot physically touches the hot stove, the pot heats, and then the pot physically touches whatever inside of it and heats that. The third method is the least efficient and is called radiation or radiative heating. This is how the sun transfers energy to Earth. It's how heat lamps work in cafeterias or terrariums. It works by light being given off by an object and that light energy being absorbed by another. Every single object that has any temperature above absolute zero, which is negative 273 degrees Celsius, will radiate heat. Putting these together for Earth, the Sun radiates heat to the planet. This gets absorbed by the Earth's surface. The surface physically touches the bottom of the atmosphere, transferring heat by conduction. The atmosphere physically mixes around, transferring heat by convection. Going to the Moon, this doesn't work. The Moon, again, has no atmosphere. The only way for it to heat up is for it to absorb heat from the Sun. The only way for the moon to cool down is to radiate that heat away into space. So while on Earth, the region right above the surface is generally pretty close to the same temperature as the surface, on the moon, space is directly above the surface, and space doesn't really have a temperature. At least for purposes here, space does not have a temperature. The only way for the film to heat up is for it to either absorb radiated energy from the sun and the moon, or for it to have heat conducted to it from the moon through the astronaut to the camera to the film. Neither of these are a very fast process. Both of them were made even slower by coating the astronauts and the film in white reflective material, and giving the film and cameras extra insulation. And besides all that, the lunar landings took place near dawn, before that part of the moon had heated to the plus 200 degrees Fahrenheit, and after it had warmed above the coldest negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit. This is a case, like many, that sounds like it makes sense. Ah! Oh no! 400 degrees! Temperature difference! We're all gonna die! But your common sense on Earth doesn't transfer to the different environment on the moon. With this next claim, we're going to move on to radiation. This claim comes from Bennett and Percy's Dark Moon book, page 540. It goes, David Groves, Ph.D., has shown that the X-ray environment of space would quickly render any photographs unusable. First off, this is a fairly blatant argument from authority. David Groves has a Ph.D., therefore he must be right. Well, guess what? I also have a PhD. We can't both be right. In this case, I am. Why? Because I said so. But also because Dr. Grove's study was full of holes, not just caused by his radiation. First, Groves didn't use the same film, the same shielding, nor even the same brand of camera that the Apollo astronauts did. Now, I don't quite blame him on the last point. Hasselblad cameras are really friggin' expensive. But... If you want to test whether or not the film would have at least been irradiated at all, you kind of need to do the same thing that the astronauts did, or at least simulate it well. 
But that's not the only thing that Groves didn't do right. The radiation that you get on average in space is at an energy level of around 5 kiloelectron volt particles, or 5 KeVs. 1 KeV is equal to 10 to the minus 16th joules. Now, unless you're a physicist, this probably doesn't mean much to you. To put it into perspective, you would need 10 to the 17th of those per second to power a 60-watt light bulb. So you'd need a lot of this. So the average radiation source in space is 5 keV particles. Groves exposed the film to 8 MeV. MeV, for those of you familiar with the metric system, is 1,000 times more than keV. So he exposed the film to 1,000 times more energetic particles. He also exposed the film to the equivalent of 6 years worth of radiation at 8 MeV, as opposed to the few weeks that was the average Apollo mission, including the three days there and three days back. What he found was that, yes, the film was rendered unusable, but that doesn't mean anything. What he did is exactly the same as me putting a cake into a 3,000 degree oven for a full week and then saying that it's impossible to bake a cake. I have proved, scientifically, it is impossible to bake a cake because mine burned. With all that said, I'm finally going to take you full circle, or full orbit, and get back to Bart Cybrell. His next clip is probably the most major one in this set that's advocated by conspiracy people, and it has to do with the Van Allen Belt radiation. Unbeknownst to the citizenry, high above the Earth, beginning at an altitude of 1,000 miles and extending an additional 25,000 miles, lay lethal bands of radiation called the Van Allen radiation belts. Every space mission in history with humans on board, from both the United States and Soviet Union, from the first in 1961 to the present, has been well below this deadly radiation field. Mercury, Gemini, Soyuz, Skylab, the space shuttle, all maintained altitudes well below 1,000 miles. All except Apollo. To survive the hour and a half journey through this radiation field necessary to reach the moon and return, solid lead shielding between the astronauts and the exposure outside would be required. You're quite often going to hear this whole six feet of lead shielding, that's two meters for you metric folks, is going to be needed to protect astronauts from the Van Allen Belt radiation. This is a case where, like many, it's really on the conspiracy folks to show their math. I've searched and found no one that's ever shown this to actually be the case. I was only able to find two references to it. The first was from a book from the 1980s, that said that six feet of lead shielding would be needed to protect a crew on a 2,000-year trip to the nearest star. 2,000 years. That's a bit longer from a three-day trip to the moon. The second reference was from the 1930s by a physicist saying that a certain type of radiation was blocked by the time it reached the bottom of a lake. When you add a column of water from the lake to a column of atmosphere, that's about as much material as a column of six feet of lead. Neither of these have any bearing on radiation in the Van Allen belts. In fact, the discoverer of the Van Allen belts, James Van Allen, has said that there is nothing to this hoax conspiracy claim. But let's continue. The claim is wrong. We already know that, but let's find out why it's wrong. 
Six feet of lead would actually be more than enough to protect you from a large atomic bomb. And to really understand why you don't want lead to be your shield in this case, you have to know a little bit about radiation. The kind of radiation that's found in the Van Allen belts is generally alpha and beta particles, fancy physics terms for a helium atom and an electron. Helium is really easy to protect against because it's low energy and it's heavy. It won't even penetrate your skin. Heck, you could wrap a capsule in a rubber balloon and you've protected it from helium or alpha particles. Electrons, they're a bit trickier. It's true lead would stop them, but when metals absorb high energy electrons, they have this kind of nasty habit of emitting what's called bremsstrahlung radiation. Now, I don't actually want to go into detail on bremsstrahlung radiation, and I'll actually post a link in the show notes to more information about it. But the basic idea is that when an electron is deflected by another charged particle, in this case, an atom of lead, it will lose energy. But that energy is converted to a photon of light. You have this law in physics called the conservation of energy. In this case, that photon of light would be a more dangerous X-ray. So the best way to shield from the electrons found in the Van Allen belts is by something that's thick and low density that'll absorb the electrons without emitting other radiation. Water would be good, but you can't really build a spaceship out of water unless maybe you're as indie aquatic from a bad series that shall not be named. Instead, NASA used plastics. That's really enough to refute the claim here, but there's a little bit more to say. First, NASA's not stupid. The mission carried the astronauts through a relatively thin part of the belts, which made the average exposure time round trip to be about three hours. The astronauts wore radiation detectors, which showed that they absorbed an average of about four times the average airplane pilot in a year. That's a lot, but the maximum radiation absorbed was on Apollo 14, which was still only about 0.7% of a lethal dosage. Beyond this, there was the small part about how no one's traveled beyond the Van Allen belt since Apollo. That's actually pretty much true. But the reason is simply that nothing's been built that can. Shuttle, Gemini, Soyuz, the ISS, all of these things, none of them had enough fuel to go past low Earth orbit. There just wasn't enough public interest to justify the funding from the people holding the purse strings. On to the puzzler. The scenario last time was this. Asteroids tend to have, overall, pretty circular orbits, and they generally orbit within the rest of the plane of the solar system. Comets, though, generally have highly elliptical orbits, and are generally on more inclined orbits to the planets. Why? No one actually got the answer completely correct, although I'm dealing with an N of 2. Eric from North Carolina, who sent in his solution through email, was the closer one to the correct full answer. The full answer is based on an understanding of the current model of the solar system formation. As the solar system formed, the pre-solar nebula collapsed down into a disk shape that revolved around the center of mass that became our sun. Because of various physical laws, including conservation of angular momentum and gravity, 
regions of the disk that were closer to the center of mass orbited faster, had more collisions, and they evolved more circular orbits within the same plane because those collisions dampen out random motions. Particles in the disk farther away orbited more slowly. They had fewer collisions in a given time period, and so any vertical motions were less quickly dampened out. This effect remained after the Sun was born and literally blew away the remaining solar nebula material. So the asteroids were within the region that had more dampened circular orbits, generally within the same plane, and subsequent collisions over the past 4.5 billion years have maintained and enhanced that. Contrast that with comets, which are 10 to 1,000 times farther away, and at that distance they're much less dampened into a disk, and so comets are significantly more likely to have higher inclinations. For a comet to enter the inner solar system, it must have started out pretty far away, and then been nudged inwards. By definition, if you start out far from the sun as your farthest distance, but then come close to it as your closest distance, you're on a pretty elliptical orbit. This week, the main segment topic was on heat and temperature, as I'm sure you remember. One of the main things I try to do when teaching courses or writing or speaking about astronomy, physics, and geology topics is to try to link the concept to everyday experience so that it's easier to remember. The puzzler this week follows along that line, but with heat transfer. In this scenario, you have one hour, maybe two, before you need to make dinner, and you have to thaw chicken breasts that come directly from the freezer. You have the following options available to you. First, put it in the refrigerator. Second, put it on the kitchen counter. Three, put it in a container of cold water. Or four, run a tiny stream of cold water over the chicken. Of those four options, what is the best and fastest mechanism to thaw the chicken? Try to figure out the answer and send it to Puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. In terms of feedback, I only have one that I wanted to actually bring up, and this is from my blog, from the post where I announced that I'd released the Comet Elenine episode. From question mark. Yes, this person does not know their name. This person says, Well, I will say this. Lot of disaster going on. People just need a culprit could be all the stuff in the Bible, locust, flood, water running red and being toxic, animal die-off, volcanoes, earthquakes, becoming more devastating, telescopes being shut down, space programs ending, comma, 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 war and upheaval occurring everywhere, I would say all our worst fears are becoming reality. What would people believe, Mr. Smarty? You tell us, just a bad year? Question mark, question mark, question mark. In response to question marks, question marks, well, a lot of this stuff has always been happening, and you're just sort of noticing it now because you want to. Also because we have a 24-hour news cycle with instant news on the internet. This whole thing about ending of the space program, well, we don't have really an ending of our entire space program. The shuttle program has ended, but, you know... We kind of ended Apollo for a few years and didn't have anything going up, and I don't remember the world ending then. Volcanoes. Well, volcanoes have been occurring pretty much since Earth formed. Same with earthquakes. 
Again, you're just sort of noticing it now because there are more people around. You have more access to news. Obviously, you have the internet because you're posting a comment on my blog and listening to my podcast. But it's really not any different from how things were a decade ago, a year ago, a century ago. Granted, we have more efficient ways of killing each other now, but that, again, really only ties into what you want to look for. People have been predicting the end of the world since there have been people to predict the end of the world. And that wraps up the topic for this fifth edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little bit at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback, and it may even make it onto the episode. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes, and tell your friends and family. Thank you.